Gen Off Grid provides stations with reliable energy systems comprising of solar, lithium batteries and backup diesel, reducing current diesel usage by up to 90%. All systems are built and tested at our workshops in Broome, Caratha and Darwin, with proven performance in North Australian conditions, backed by a 10-year warranty, local support and remote monitoring. Visit their website to see systems in action on cattle stations as well as commercial, ecotourism and industrial projects. Learn more at genoffgrid.com. That's G-E-N-O-F-F-G-R-I-D.com. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Willie Cook is known as the bull-catching, helicopter-flying Kiwi from the ABC TV series Outback Ringer. I caught up with Willie at his home in the Adelaide River region of the Northern Territory to hear the incredible story of how he and his young family came to be in Australia. However, that story is coming next week. Today, I'm sharing the very beginning of our chat, where Willie told me about his early years in New Zealand. And as I so often do, I started our conversation by asking Willie what he was like as a child. I guess, like, what were you? Because you're a pretty wild man now. Were you wild as a kid? <laughs> yeah, I suppose you'd say that. Um, probably a question for Dad anyway. But um, definitely uh, growing up in New Zealand, um, we grew up on a high country station called Waiteri, which was um, between Queenstown and Cromwell and Wanaka. Uh, fantastic area. So I was surrounded by mountains and snow and um, you know, all the sorts of wonderful things that you'd sort of want as a child and had a beautiful, great old homestead and, you know, wonderful, loving family and spent a lot of time, um, you know, with, with dad and my grandfather out mustering. And basically ever since I could sort of walk, I've been everywhere with dad and, you know, right up until the age where I had to go to boarding school. But yeah, followed dad or one of the musters all around the hill and until I was old enough to, you know, um, start training my own team of dogs and doing all that. And yeah, so I was always a pretty active kid and I was, yeah, pretty, suppose pretty wild and loved the country life. And yeah, it was, it was wonderful upbringing for me. That's for sure. This next question is going to make a lot of listeners cringe, I think, because I do like to say that I'm fairly well traveled, but, um, Queenstown, is that the North or the South Island? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, no, it's in the lower South Island of New Zealand. Okay. Um, so right down the bottom. Right so. down the bottom. The best part of New Zealand. And so what, so when you say a station, a station in New Zealand is quite different to a station 
in Australia is this sheep or cattle and and what is the you said it's kind of like mountainy I've heard there's places in New Zealand where people basically kind of like muster their sheep on foot because they can't even get out there on horses and bikes like was it that kind of country or yeah that's exactly what it was um you know after well I suppose my granddad um got the place in the uh, 30s or 40s it was all done on horseback Team of 15, 20 horses, um, three o'clock breakfasts, riding out for four to five hours just to get to the, well, as we called it, a block. Um, over here it's referred to as paddocks, but over there in the high country, yeah, get out to a, a block. Generally then it's just coming on daylight and you might be surrounded by uh, fog and you can't actually do the muster so then you have to walk all the way back horses and um, pack horses and that all the way back to the station unsaddle and go again the next morning um the weather over there is so susceptible um it's uh, sorry susceptible to change you know just because you had a beautiful sunny crystal clear day um the day before you might have a you know minus six minus seven blustery southerly winds the following day in snow so it's very unpredictable, the weather, and it was really, really hard to actually plan and work in. Um, yeah, as you you know, it's everything changes. Um, weather pattern, very, very hard one. I say this, this comes from a good place, I promise, but that sounds horrendous. Like, what makes your family <clears throat> want to stay there for, you know, over for the however many decades, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and not go somewhere else in New Zealand? Like, that sounds like a very tough place to live. Well, it was the good days that got you through the bad days. Crystal clear, sunny days, not a breath of wind, six, 7,000 feet. You're the only person around there, you know, apart from the guy below you on, who might be mustering or um, if you're in a helicopter, you know, there was just days there where it just felt like there was no one around you and, you know, it was the best place in the world to be. Um, I loved high altitude. I was super fit back then. It was just like for me, still, they're some of the best memories I've ever had, being in that high alpine country and snow and tussocks and uh, following a mob of sheep or cattle and, um, you know, and we were lucky enough as well. We had a lot of deer. Um, we farmed then as well for the velvet antler and, and for venison um, for the meat production. And it was, yeah, as a kid and, you know, right up until coming over here, it was, it was bloody amazing. It was, yeah, a wonderful upbringing. What can you tell me about deer? Because I think my knowledge is restricted to more or less Bambi and <laughs> then deer trying to run out in front of my car every five minutes when I lived in America. And that's yeah. all I've got. I don't think I've ever e- even eaten deer. Yeah. Well, deer, they're a very elusive animal and um, they were a, a national pest in New Zealand. Um, they were inter- introduced, um, you know, by tweed-coated gentlemen from England as a game. Um they became out of control very quickly. They were very um, susceptible to New Zealand conditions. They loved it. They thrived. They spread. And it basically created a multi-million dollar business um, within New Zealand, you know, with, um, with what led to the venison recovery um, and the, you know, the exportation of um, all the venison um, throughout the world. And, yeah, it created a booming business. And then basically... What happened then is that we basically shot them out and there weren't a lot of deer left so they had to try and find a way to make it sustainable and that's where the net gunning come along and the live capture of animals and then they were farmed. So because they were in such low numbers, they were worth such a premium and the deer up to between sort of three and $4,000 per hind, uh, which is a female deer, a female Bambi. 
And um, so, yeah, there was big money paid for them, and then that created another boom um, called the Life Capture Days. And um, unfortunately, that sort of went out in the late 80s. But, yeah, then what happened was basically it was just like any other animal we farmed, um, whether, you know, sheep, cattle, um, deer become their own sort of commodity, and um, people, you know, have invested a lot of money in deer fencing, and they've been, you know, reasonably sustainable now, and... Um, yeah, going good. So they they were an amazing animal, and they just thrived in New Zealand. And yeah, I was real proud to be a part of it. To be honest. Now you just said the word net gun or net net gunning, and I've never heard that before. But the visual that's come to my mind is like something from the cartoons where you shoot the gun and like the little capsule comes out and then it opens up into a net, kind of like a parachute, and then captures the thing. Is that what that is, or is it something different? No, that's exactly what it is. I didn't yeah. know those were used yeah. in real life. I thought yeah. that was like a Yogi Bee Bear kind of cartoon concept. No, well, what you've seen out of the cartoon is what happened. Um, that was, uh, well, it was like the third uh, mechanism used um, that was developed, but, um, yeah, that was the most effective and efficient was the, the net gun um, out of your cartoons, and it worked well. Come along, size up the animal. Try and get it going uphill if you can, and then come and flare above it, and a net's fired out. The animal's um, captured within the net. Shooter jumps out, ties it up, hooked under the helicopter, and flown back. Um, you know, giving it necessary shots and things like that, and then sold. So um, yeah, it worked worked really well. That's wild. And you also mentioned something about helicopters before. So. I know obviously New Zealand being a much smaller country than Australia, even though there are some very large properties there, they would be, I'm guessing, still smaller than, say, your Australian, the, the extensive properties out here. And a, a big part of the reason helicopters are used here is to cover a lot of country. Was that the same there or was it that you needed the helicopters because it was just such rugged terrain and, and mountainous and kind of be able to get from spot A to spot B and not take four days on a horse to get there? Yeah, that's basically it. You know, over here the stations are they're huge and the country is vast. Um, in New Zealand, we might have only been four or five mile from the house, but um, we might have been at 6,000, 6,500 feet, and to get to there might take five or six hours, seven hours to walk um, or to dr- even drive out there. You know, um, as I say, you're 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, leaving with men and dogs and driving all the way out. The helicopter fixed all that. Um, you were basically dropped out to where you were mustering, um, via a Hughes 500 or a squirrel, um, you could take all the musters, all the dogs. Dropped out by a squirrel. Yeah, no, we use squirrels a lot out there. Um, and for anyone listening, can you explain what a, oh, is squirrels, that, is that a, it's a great A350? Big, yeah, A380? AS350. Yeah. Um, a great big three-bladed turbine helicopter can lift sort of, um, you know, well, depending on the models, but, you know, the, the new models of today's era can lift up over a ton. So, you know, you can fit a lot of men, a lot of dogs oh. and, um, and very fast and, you know, what would take us four or five hours um, to drive up there, we were there in four or five minutes. So it was um, it was a hell of a revolution and it did cost money, but, um, you know, time is money as well. And um, it, it was, uh, yeah, so as a little kid being able to, you know, squeeze in the middle between the pilot and dad and all the other musters and then I was lucky enough they'd all get dropped off and quite often the pilot would fly me back to Queenstown and drop me off at school <laughs> so I wouldn't have to catch the school bus so I could just jump in, in the squirrel or the 500 and get dropped off on the sports field and then grab my little school bag and walk into the classroom. So That's pretty cool. a few perks of the job when you were five, that's for sure. 
So I know you've been a pilot for quite a while now. Was that born out of a love for flying, like those experiences as a child, or was it more so born out of the necessity that if you're going to run a property like that, you kind of you need to use aircraft so maybe it's more cost efficient to be able to do it yourself? Yeah, I was, I was very lucky, but, I mean, um, you know, even today, you know, for, I'm 40 now, been flying 20 years, um, but every time I hear the sound of a shoes 500 or something, it, you know, takes me back to my childhood and, and I think I was two or three, the first time I went in a helicopter pilot, Dennis Edgerton, and flying out with the men and being able to do those fun things and that. And um, But, you know, my grandfather flew. Um, he was a doctor in Invercargill, which is right down the bottom of the South Island, and he was a commercial um, fixed-wing pilot, and he used it for his business as well, which was pretty cool. Um, he sort of was part of that, um, I suppose, helping establish that sort of, I suppose, the term, the flying doctor, and... Uh, then my mother flew, uh, she flew planes as well and, um, and then, yeah, one of my other uncles flies as well and I, I don't know, I've just always had an uh, affection for helicopters and, you know, and then, uh, growing up when I was 16, I was 16, I started, um, being a shooter, for, uh, out of a helicopter. So another problem we have in New Zealand is a lot of feral animals and they have to be, those numbers have to be reduced. So I was um, lucky enough to be a shooter and, you know, I got to see a lot of country and was able to help sort of, you know, eradicate, you know, we even shoot rabbits out of the helicopter and that became quite a big business for us. Um, in New Zealand did a lot of rabbits, goats, pigs. Um, yeah, so helicopters were a major part of our life and our upbringing and, of course, I, I really enjoyed them and so... Um, we used helicopters a lot in our station. I was interested in flying, so it was sort of an obvious career choice for me to, you know, I sort of felt if I'm going to do what I do and be successful, I wanted to be able to do everything, and so I wanted to fly. And um, I suppose five, six years of shooting, or four years of shooting before I obtained my helicopter licence, you know, and it gave me a really good grounding as well and an understanding of sort of the principles of flight. And, and I was very lucky. I had wonderful people like, you know, some of the best people in New Zealand, Harvey Hutton, Doug Maxwell, you know, they were, I got to sit next to them, you know, so I was lucky enough to get taught from them and um, spend a lot of time with them. And yeah, so helicopters was a progression forward for me. And, you know, later on in life, you know, I didn't know it then, but, you know, it was actually saved, saved my bacon really, because it gave me an opportunity to, you know, to use those skills in another country. If it's all right, I'd like to take a minute to ask you about your time as an aerial shooter because I think that's a profession that can be quite controversial, as mm. many things in this industry are. Um, and and like in any anywhere in the world, any profession, there's always a few people that aren't. You know, you've always got a few cowboys or a few people that aren't. You know, doing things right, but and that's generally what attracts the publicity. But for the most part. The skill of, you know, I used to work for the government in WA and we had shooters that would go out and cull feral animals and the skill of these marksmen was just phenomenal. Um, but I've never had a chance to have one on the podcast. So I was just wondering if you could give us a bit of a rundown about sort of what's involved and, and I guess to demonstrate like how niche and, you know, that it's not just, you know, some bloke hanging out the side of a chopper with a rifle going like a Mick Taylor laugh from... um Wolf Creek being like, ha, ha, ha. And like, you're not just shooting things for the fun of it. Like, there's so much precision involved and um, rules about, you know, how accurate you have to be and and auditing and. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Um, you know, and and yeah, it was it was a very hard job. And either you were you were good or you didn't do it. You know, that's all it was. The pilots chose their shooters. 
um, they groomed you and schooled you. And, um, you know, I'd been lucky enough. I've been shooting since I've been about five. Um, and, you know, obviously we had a lot of rabbits on the station and rabbits were, you know, as they are in Australia, were very, very detrimental to New Zealand. And, um, you know, there was all forms of, um, eradication theories and methods used, but, Especially after poisoning, where we, you know, another controversial thing was that 1080 poisoning, but you know, it worked really well, and and that that's where we come into it was the follow up to the 1080 poisoning and out of the helicopters, and yeah, I mean, you, it, it was a, you know, your pilot was very angry at you if a rabbit got away, you know, they were they were like gold, um, everyone had to be got. Um, and I was lucky enough that I flew with fantastic pilots that were able to set the machine up well and give you a good shot at them. And um, but it, you know it was people's livelihood, and um, there were a lot of people that you know lost their um, high country stations due to rabbits. And um, you know so it was up to us. We wanted to make sure that we did a hell of a good job. And you know every rabbit we got for them, you know, bought them longevity and uh, more feed for their animals. So yeah, I mean we took it very seriously, and um, yeah we did a good job. I felt. What height would you be flying at when you're trying to take down a rabbit? Um, oh, you sort of, you know, 30 feet in the air. Depends on the topography and if you're, you know, when you're working a gully versus working an open face, but you're reasonably close to the hill and you had very good gear and, um, yeah, well, we, yeah, we had bloody good gear and it was, um, it was pretty simple, really. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was, it was a hard job, but, um, we spent, you know, sometimes eight to 12 hours a day doing it when the weather was right and, we always had two shooters, so you'd do a what we called a run each or an hour each, and um, yeah, so the because you do get very tired, it's very draining on you, especially doing rabbits. Um, you know, the aim was sort of under a hundred an hour, but on some jobs we we could have been six or seven hundred an hour. So you know, when you fired that many shots that quickly, um, it's good to have a break, and um, yeah, so that's we always had you know from when I was shooting, there was always two shooters um, on the rabbit and goat jobs. And um and right up to when I became a, a pilot and was doing it commercially, yeah, we I always had two shooters as well, and you know one would drive to the job with the fuel and all the ammo, and um, then I would fly to the job with my first shooter, and then by the time that the um the guy arrived um with the fuel truck and that my guy who'd already done hour and a half shooting for that morning, he was ready for a break, so fresh legs jump in, away you go, and it was just a way of keeping everyone. You know, efficient and, you know, there's very little missing went on because everyone was fresh, you know. It's just, it's insane. I think, I mean, I've, I've never heard of people shooting rabbits like that in Australia, but for, I mean, there's, I'm going to guess it probably has happened somewhere, but I'm, I'm just thinking on the fly here that maybe, like everything I hear about in Australia, like for rabbit management, aside from like, say, myxomatosis or, you know, those kind of biological weapons is, people would go and rip their paddocks and try and rip up the warrens. And I'm guessing in the kind of country you're in, you can't really get a tractor up there to rip up something on the like cliff face. Like, yeah. And that must be what, is that why you guys had to go and shoot? Because you couldn't use other measures? Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, the country was, um, you know, a lot of it rolling to sort of semi-steep and mid-altitude, sort of, well, mid-altitude when I say that sort of, you know, rabbits were generally pretty thick up to about sort of three, three and a half thousand feet. Over that, they didn't really like it as much up there, so... And more densely populated, lower down. Um, on the flats, yeah, we used to do a lot of that ripping of the ripping warrens and things like that. Um, but yeah, the, that was sort of the, the main way was, um, topography. And, um, that's why the helicopter was so amazing for it. And so if you started shooting at 16 and then you got your pilot's license a few years later, 
What was the plan? Was it sort of to be, I guess, third generation on the station and kind of just take over and just, is that, was that kind of what you had planned out? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was a hard one. Um, I don't know which way to go, um, for a long way. I mean, I absolutely love my farming, but I really love my flying. Um, being able to incorporate them both together was great. And yeah, I mean, that was the plan to, um, you know, sort of have a standalone helicopter business that uh, complemented the station, but also um, take over the station one day and, yeah, take over the whole operation. All right, that's it for part one of our chat with Willie Cook. Make sure you tune in next week for a full episode where Willie will tell the story of the incredible hardship that he and Liz and their family faced, which ultimately led them to moving to Australia. Now, on a slightly different note, we have had a few sponsorship opportunities come up for 2023 and the remainder of this year as well. So if you know any businesses that would like to advertise through our podcast or be the major sponsor, please make sure you get in touch with us via our website or our social media accounts. Um, With our advertising, we're able to offer geo-targeted adverts, so you know, if there's a business that, you know, is in one part of Australia and they only want their adverts to be heard in one part of Australia, we can do that. And we can also make sure the adverts only play during certain episodes or certain times of the year uh, on certain days. Like there's a, there's a lot of flexibility there. So if you know any businesses that would be interested in advertising through our podcast, please let us know. Rates start from as little as $20 for 1000 impressions. So $20 will make sure that your ad is played in a thousand episodes. Well, not different episodes, you know what I mean, but it'll be heard a thousand times. So yeah, please do get in touch because um, as many of you know, this show, um, we can't survive without sponsors. Um, it's the only way we can kind of try and cover our expenses. And, and a lot of what we do here is a love job. So um, you'll notice we didn't have an episode last week because... Sometimes, you know, you've got to focus on the jobs that actually pay you. So if you'd like us to be able to keep putting out this content, please um, support us. You can also do donations through the ACAST link in our show notes. Um, But yeah, if you know anyone, send them our way. We'd love to work with you. See you next week.